Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and you're listening to the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. As you might know, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, brought up as a Baptist in Pennsylvania. I went to the fundamentalist Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, and then God called me to be an Anglican. I was an Anglican priest for 10 years living in England, uh, and then eventually came into full communion with the Catholic Church. I then returned after 10 years working as a Catholic layman in England to be ordained as a Catholic priest back in Greenville, South Carolina. So if you didn't think God had a sense of humor, I was ordained as a Catholic priest just a few miles away from Bob Jones University, which is known for being a pretty anti-Catholic institution. I now serve as the priest of Our Lady of the Rosary Parish in Greenville, South Carolina. Also, I blog regularly on Standing on My Head, and my website is DwightLongenecker.com. I invite you to come and be one of my visitors there and read some of my articles and read some of the work that I've done also. I go around and speak in parishes, leading retreats and doing missions and speaking at conferences. If you'd like me to come and be a speaker for your special event, you can get in contact with me through my website, which is DwightLongenecker.com. On More Christianity, we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church, and we do that by examining different categories of topics. One week we'll talk to a convert. The next week we might be talking about Catholic culture, music, art, literature, film, all sorts of different ways in which the Catholic story, the Christian story, is retold again and again within our culture, within the arts, and within fullness of the Catholic faith. We also talk to particular guests who are fervently followers of different saints, and we explore the lives of the saints and and show how following the different saints can be practical in the world today. Another aspect or another strand in more Christianity programming is that from time to time, on a regular basis, I have one of my friends as a guest. Sean Chapman is a teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic School where he teaches apologetics and church history, and he comes to the program to discuss different aspects of the supernatural. So today, I welcome as my guest for the program, Sean Chapman. Welcome, Sean. Thanks again for having me. Sean, in one of our earlier programs, we discussed the phenomenon of the incorruptible bodies of saints, a fascinating topic. You told us your story about going and visiting in Nevers and seeing St. Bernadette, probably the most famous of the modern incorruptibles. We talked about St. Charbel Marcluf and explored the whole strange phenomena of the incorruptible bodies of saints. And you were right when you said that it was a little bit kind of gruesome and, and strange. And the whole topic of relics, which is what an incorruptible body really is, really is uh, rather peculiar and odd and, and uh, very, very Catholic, because it's how we explore the physical aspect of our faith, and we actually say God purified a person in this life, and it extended to their body as well. It's not quite so cut and dried as all that, and we just had a good discussion about the theology and what it really signifies and how to take the supernatural. Will you summarize that for us? What is the proper Catholic approach to this whole topic of the supernatural? Well, I think that one has to take a very measured approach sort of keeping in balance this idea of, of faith and reason, which is the mark of the Catholic faith. And I think one of the mistakes of unbelievers, especially that subscribe only, say, they say, to reason, is that they don't realize that reason involves faith as well. In other words, you collect a certain amount of evidence, and then you look at that evidence and you say, there's reason to believe this. I can't prove it 100%, just like any scientific law can't be proved 100%. Was it John Paul II who said that faith and reason are like two wings? You need both to fly. It's interesting you said that reason relies on faith, that at some point, no matter what your reasonable belief is, you gather the evidence, but at some point you have to make, even if it's only a tiny, tiny leap of faith, a leap of faith to say, right, I'm going to commit to this. This is something which I can believe. I've gathered enough evidence. 
And the other way around is true as well, isn't it? That faith also relies on reason. Nobody expects faith to be something which is totally fantastic. And this is one of the things which the new atheists always like a drum they like to bang on saying, you know, faith is just irrational belief in, in you know, the sky fairy. Uh, it's just an irrational belief in fairy tales and superstition and myth. When are you going to get over it? When are you going to grow up? When are you going to move on? And we have to come back and say, that's not faith, that's superstition. Well, as you like to say, Father, to stand it on its head, the irony is that Catholics are more reasonable than the rationalist. And there's a perfect example of this in, in New York City. There was a display in downtown, and it sort of had two images. One at the top, it said, keep the Mary, and it had an image of Santa Claus, jolly old St. Uh-huh. Nick. And at the bottom, it had a crucified Christ as drop the myth. Right. And I pointed this out to my students. I said, what's the irony of this? The historical figure is Christ crucified. So they're actually keeping the myth as opposed to the reality. Right. I, I saw the same ad, and they're saying, let's keep Santa Claus, who's actually the myth, and uh, throw out <laughs> Christ crucified, which is a historical piece of of data, no matter what you make of him and the resurrection. Still, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in 33 AD by Pontius Pilate. It's a verifiable fact. Mm -hmm. And so we approach the same subject of the supernatural with a combination of faith and reason. In a previous program, we discussed the incorruptible bodies of saints, another fascinating subject, which like that actually gets very physical and gets a little bit, well, a little bit gruesome, I suppose, when you think about it, is another subject which we're exploring today, which is Eucharistic miracles. Sean, before we go into hearing your stories about uh, the Eucharistic miracles, I think it's useful to remind ourselves and remind our listeners what Catholics actually do believe about the Eucharist. And to do that, I just like to remind people what non-Catholics believe. When I was growing up as a uh, Baptist, an independent fundamentalist sort of Christian, it was strange. We didn't actually know what we believed about the Eucharist, but we knew what we didn't believe. What we didn't believe was that it was the body and blood of Christ. <laughs> as non-Catholics, we debated about what it really was, and most people came down to the point of view that it was, a, it was symbolic, that it was a kind of picture. It was a reminder of Jesus' death for us, and that the bread and the wine was his body and blood in a, in a symbolic way to remind us that he died for our sins and that he loved us and shed his blood for us. But that's not the Catholic view. Right. So you're a theology teacher. Remind us what Catholics believe on this important doctrine. The Eastern Church is more mysterious, but in the West we tend to say during the, the words of consecration, this is my body. We know that the elements change, um, the sacred elements change. And even though the, the accidents, as we call them, which are the sort of the physical attributes, remain— Of, of bread and wine. Of, of bread and wine right. remain, whatever bread and wine are in their essence, changes— to the body and blood of Christ. Exactly. This is the term transubstantiation, which right. is a Catholic technical theological term. It's a philosophical term. I've heard it explained that transubstantiation is a philosophical explanation of a mystery that is beyond explanation. Right. <laughs> in other words, transubstantiation is talking about this word substance, which – and this term comes to us from the Middle Ages. But substance in the Middle Ages doesn't mean what substance means now. Right. Each thing contains – descriptive elements, just like I have brown hair, mm-hmm. for example. But if, if you cut my hair, I would still be me. Your essence. Exactly. Okay. Another way I've explained it to people is to say, in my downstairs bathroom at home, we have a whole collection of family pictures. And there's one of me when I'm a baby. And then there's my high school graduation, and I'm a smiling, hopeful 18-year-old. And then there's my wedding photograph and a picture from family holidays when I'm in my 40s. And of course, I look very different 
that little tiny right. baby of, of 18 months and, and the high school senior and the dad at the age of 40 and so forth, you could almost look at it and say, how could that be the same person? But it's the same person because there was a Dwightness right, that, exactly. that continued through all those different changes. Which is a great mystery. What is Dwightness? That right. is a real good question. But <laughs> that's an analogy of the substance right. of, of what we're talking about. That Dwightness is my substance. So we're saying that the substance of the bread and the wine, you're saying, is transformed to the body and blood of Christ. And people say that's why we call it the real presence, because that substance is the reality of the bread and wine, just like the Dwightness is the reality of me. That gives it its reality. We wouldn't say, well, whiteness is bread. Uh, We wouldn't point to and say, well, the, the weight of it is... And this shows you that there's a mystery at the heart of everything because we really can't say what that is. And that's the kind of supernatural reality that's present to us every day that we really can't sort of get at the heart of. And so this Catholic belief that there is a real transformation of the bread and the wine at every single Eucharist is a mystery that we hold to, which we we will never give up. This is part of our Catholic heritage. It was given to us by Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 6, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have, do not have life within you. It's something that we're going to not compromise on. We can't compromise on it because it's a gift from God himself. Yeah, and this is the key to understanding faith, which is it's not being able to prove it or necessarily verify. We, we can't prove when we receive the Eucharist unless I suppose we had a Eucharistic miracle ourselves, but we can't prove that that's his flesh. We believe it because he said it. Right. We're going to talk now. You're going to tell me a few stories about the Eucharistic miracles because while the Eucharistic miracles don't prove what we believe, they are good signs and pointers towards what we believe. Exactly. I want to remind you, if you just tuned in, that you're listening to more Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and I'm talking to Sean Chapman, who's a theology teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina. Sean joins me on the program to discuss the supernatural elements of our faith and today we're talking about Eucharistic miracles. If you would like to learn more about this, I invite you to go to my blog, which is Standing on My Head, or visit my website, twightlongenecker.com. There are articles there on the Eucharist and the sacraments. Sean, can you just tell us what do we actually mean by a, a Eucharistic miracle? Most people think of Eucharistic miracles as primarily the elements, the bread and wine, turn into the the literal flesh and blood of Christ. And that's one type of Eucharistic miracles, but there are different kinds. You you have miracles where the host levitates. Right. Or you have a miracle where maybe the, the host was thrown into a fire and it doesn't burn. Things like this. And even outside of, of Jesus himself, the miracle of, say, St. Januarius, mm-hmm. um, whose blood seems to come alive on his feast day miraculously. So there's something there. There's, once again, this idea of miracles aren't just God's way of going, hey, let me do something fun today. It's pointing to something. And so Eucharistic miracles, then, especially for our listeners who perhaps are not Catholic, is the belief of Catholics that on certain occasions, the bread and the wine, which is presented and put on the altar and consecrated by a Catholic priest, it actually does become... Real human flesh and real human blood. Yes. Of all the shocking miracles, other than this, maybe the stigmata would be the closest thing to being the sort of where, where your eyes open wide and you go, Right. There's wow. a certain shock element to this. Nobody has a real problem, I suppose, with saying that, oh, yes, the bread and the wine in a Christian communion service, they symbolize flesh and blood. That's fine. That's hunky-dory. Nobody can really object to that. But what you're saying is that some Catholics— actually believe that on certain occasions 
the bread and the wine become a piece of human flesh and human blood. Now, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here and say, come on, convince me. The first one ever to be documented involves a Basilian monk who is also a priest in the 700s. Mm-hmm. And he doubted, even though he was a believer, he doubted. So he doubted his whole Catholic faith or he, he doubted specifically the, the, the change okay. yeah. during the consecration, I should say. It changed in his hand. Now, to me, the most interesting aspect of this was, once again, back to the whole reason thing. They tested over the centuries that you can still find it in Lanciano, Italy, where the miracle itself took place. So this is the, the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano. Yes. If our listeners want to do a little bit more research, there's a fair bit of this online, isn't there? Just look up Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano. That's L-A-N-C-I-A-N-O. Is that correct? That's correct. A place in Italy. So you mean the now piece of human flesh, which was transformed at that Eucharist, in the 700s is still there and the exciting thing about this yeah. is and they've done over the centuries tests and you know scientists people that have no vested interest in this and what they found when they tested it was that it was tissue from a human heart muscle tissue from a human heart and not only that that the blood itself was ab so so in the case of other eucharistic miracles it's the same blood type every single time the cynic might say, oh, yeah, sure. Somebody dug up a cadaver and they cut a slice of the heart out and they put it in this Catholic reliquary and said, oh, look, you know, it's a it's a miracle. The church would say, well, it's been a relic. It's been something preserved from the beginning. The church wants a reason to believe. It's not just right. a matter of going, let's come up with something to keep the wool over people's eyes. In a sense, could you argue that it's it's a fraud? Perhaps. But you have numerous cases of this happening to different people in different places in different ways. And once again, as reasonable people, we say, okay, I can't prove that this is the case. But if this has happened in enough places and enough to enough people, I have to at least take that seriously. Right. And one of the things which is also quite telling is that very often the most skeptical arguments and documentation and articles about these various topics are actually written by priests. It's a priest himself who might be also be a scientist who's coming up and writing a very objective and very practical article about a, something like the miracle at Lanciano and documenting exactly what evidence there is, documenting exactly where the relic came from, and also acknowledging when there's elements of doubt. When we were talking about the incorrupt bodies of saints, for instance, I referred to the classic book by Joan Carol Cruz. I think she's written one on Eucharistic miracles as well. And what's charming about the book is that she's actually very objective about the whole thing. And she will say, for instance, I'm making one up, but she'll say, then, for instance, there is the case of St. Sean of Chapman, an Irish saint who, when they exhumed his body, which was meant to be incorrupt, they found that actually the bones that were there were were goat bones, you know, and he was (laughs) stitched up with a a bit of cloth or something. In other words, if it was a fraud, if it was something which wasn't real, or if the person had been embalmed or something had happened, she says so. She's she's not trying to fool anybody. The, the book is very objective, and, and when she doesn't know, she says, we don't know about this. And I find as well with the documentation on Eucharistic miracles, the vast majority of Catholic information about it is actually very down-to-earth and very practical and, and says, we know this, we don't know that, and there are some things here which we wish we knew, but we don't have the documentation for it. It was a long time ago, and it could be a fraud. We have to shrug our shoulders and say, not sure. Most of us know this, but I mean, the church is the, the institution which actually has for its in its canonization process, the devil's advocate. Now, I don't think they call it by the same name, mm-hmm. 
Do you see this in, you know, among atheists where you better be able to present the toughest argument on the other side? Right. Let's explore that a little bit further for our listeners. This, this whole term, the devil's advocate, actually comes from the Catholic canonization process where in the middle of the process, it's kind of like a trial. One person stands up and argues for the case that St. Sean of Chapman is actually a great Irish saint, that we want to call him a saint. And then somebody else, the devil's advocate, stands up and says, ah, no, he wasn't, you know. Here's the evidence which shows that he was not actually a saint and argues against it, which is, again, as you say, a very methodical process and one which, if it's, if it's taken seriously, will yield good results. But to go back to our discussion on Eucharistic miracles, Again, you've given the example of Lanciano. Yes. This is the famous, most famous one, uh, which happened in the 700s. Right. Are there others? Yes, there's another one. Uh, it took place in Balsina, Italy. And apparently, Italy, there are many Eucharistic miracles mm-hmm. in 1263. And, and the reason this is so well-known and renowned is because it apparently was the Eucharistic miracle that inspired the Feast of Corpus Christi. And the Feast yeah. of Corpus Christi is the, the Feast of the Body of Christ. Exactly. Okay. The interesting thing about this one was a German priest, Peter of Prague, was on a pilgrimage. He stopped at the shrine of St. Christina. Um, this is in the 1200s. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Celebrating Mass over her tomb. Once again, right during the consecration, the host began to drip blood on his hands and on the altar and ultimately on the, on the corporal. And he was so freaked out by it, apparently, he tried to cover it up. That wasn't really working, apparently, because it was prolific, if you will, enough. Ultimately, he had stopped the Mass. He was somewhat near where Pope Urban was staying at that time, which is Orvieta. Mm-hmm. So he tried to find him and tell him about this, and, and sort of he, he eventually was able to track him down. And the Pope looked at it and was so moved by what he saw, a year later instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. Let's say, for the sake of argument, again, I'm being the devil's advocate here, Okay, there are Eucharistic miracles that these two that you've told us about, and, and there are dozens, aren't there? I mean, there there are actually many more. But let's say that this is true, and a priest is given bread and wine, and he consecrates it, and oh, look, blood is dripping from the host. You know, it's turned into a piece of human flesh. If what the Catholic Church teaches is true, why doesn't it happen at every Mass? Well, once again, if every single Catholic was a saint— it wouldn't it, be it was, a miracle. Yeah, it wouldn't be a miracle <laughs> okay. or holiness. Uh, the faith would be, in some sense, just merely rationalism, which is, okay, this always happens, therefore it must be true. There, there is no element of blessed are those who believe without seeing, so to speak. Right. So that's that's a good example. It's St. Thomas, who has to put his, his fingers in, in the wounds of our Lord, and, and our Lord says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Are you saying then that just like uh, you explained, the incorruptibles help to give us faith and hope in the resurrection. The Eucharistic miracles help to give us faith and hope in what we believe about the Eucharist. Is that what you would say? Absolutely. It is the sign that points to the fact that, you know, not just, oh, believe this because it's really happening, but believe in the incarnation, believe that God has impregnated with his life all of creation to the point that even bread is living bread, as Scripture says. God is bread. Right. Okay. Then uh, if we have these Eucharistic miracles in which the bread and the wine actually are transformed sometimes into real human flesh and human blood, it raises some other questions, which I want to get back to in just a moment. I want to remind you, if you just tuned in, that you're listening to more Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and I'm talking to Sean Chapman, who's a theology teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina. Sean joins me on the program to discuss the supernatural elements of our faith We've discussed in a previous program the incorruptible bodies of saints. 
And today we're talking about Eucharistic miracles. If you would like to learn more about this, I invite you to go to my blog, which is Standing on My Head, or visit my website, DwightLongenecker.com. There are articles there. There are various teachings on the Catholic faith and on the Eucharist and the sacraments. Sean, we're talking about the Eucharistic miracles. You've talked about Lanciano. What's another another example? Is there another story of a Eucharistic miracle? As if we didn't have enough of mm-hmm. the macabre. I'm going to add one more yeah. to the list. What is it? This took place in Amsterdam, Holland in 1345. A devout Catholic man became very ill. One of his problems was he was known to not be able to keep food down. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they thought he was at the end of his life, and so they were bringing him a viaticum. Right, and by viaticum, you mean bringing the Eucharistic host to people who were sick at home, and especially those who were dying. Yes, exactly. And when they brought it to him, the same thing happened, right? He, he didn't keep it down. They knew this ahead of time, so they advised if this happens, then put the elements along with the rest in the fire. Mm-hmm. And so when they were doing this, something very strange happened that amidst the fire, very burning bush, if you will, very exodus, they saw a host glowing inside. And his wife, she felt out of reverence she needed to get it. So she put her hand in the fire and it didn't, it didn't affect her at all. She got the host and it was not hot at all. It was actually cool. Right. That's another pretty amazing miracle. Is, is there a website that you can uh, give us here where people can go and read more? One of them is www.therealpresence.org. Good. www.therealpresence.org. Go and, and have a, a look. There are other websites that are talking about all the Eucharistic miracles that have happened uh, down through the ages. And for those of you who have just tuned in, I'm discussing Eucharistic miracles with Mr. Sean Chapman, who's a teacher of theology at St. Joseph's Catholic School. A Eucharistic miracle is where the bread and the wine are brought forward to the Catholic priest to be consecrated, and inexplicably, in one way or another, it becomes real human flesh and real human blood. And this has been documented for, well, the first one was in the 700s, you right. said, right down through the Middle Ages. And there's some modern examples as well of where this happens even today. Now, the thing which follows, therefore, you just mentioned the real presence. As I can understand that this would spark our hope and our belief in the real presence. Catholics actually believe that a miracle takes place every time the Eucharist is celebrated. Under the priest's hands, these things happen. One of the things which is curious, of course, is that I don't know of any non-Catholic Christian denominations who have ever claimed a Eucharistic miracle. Of course, they believe it's only a symbol anyway, apart from perhaps Eastern Orthodox, obviously, but maybe some Anglicans and, and Lutherans who have a higher view of the Eucharist. So it only happens for Catholic priests. Is that what you're saying? We were talking about recently how in other cultures and other religions, certain people have been discovered to be incorrupt. Miracles aren't confined. It's not as if God says, oh, your Catholic miracles are okay for you. Right. The idea would be that all miracles, all signs are meant to point us in the direction of true faith. And yet one of the things about miracles, which I'd like to explore here in in a more general way, is the attitude to miracles in our general population. It seems to me that we have two extremes, that there are some people who are very taken up with miracles and the supernatural, whether they're Catholics or whether they're even Christians, they're all caught up with fascination for everything paranormal. And I'm including here, you know, Bigfoot and aliens and conspiracy theories and (laughs) all sorts of things. And they're obsessed with, with the supernatural, with the paranormal and with miracles and all these kind of things. And then there are those who are on the other extreme who are kind of rationalist intellectuals, very often people who would look down their nose at any kind of miracle and simply say, I think it was David Hume, the famous philosopher, who said, 
miracles are impossible because miracles are impossible or something right. to, to that effect. <laughs> you know, he simply just ruled right. it out and said, miracles do not happen. Things might happen for which we do not have explanations, but eventually we'll find out why it happened because miracles are impossible. They cannot work. They cannot happen. So how do you react to that? Because it seems to me also that those who are gullible and, and go after every miracle that comes along are very often looked down on by, I'll call them intellectuals. If you are an intellectual out there listening, I'm not knocking all intellectuals. I'm talking about the sort of intellectual that is very rationalist and doubts anything miraculous. When I teach this uh, miracles to my students, uh, one of the things that comes up is the fact that miracles aren't irrational necessarily. Mm -hmm. So the mistake that is made by uh, materialists and rationalists is that in order for a miracle to be a miracle, that there can't be an explanation, which is how they rule out the possibility uh -huh. of any miracles ever happening. I would argue that there may be some rational explanation for the resurrection in a physical way. Does that mean that God didn't intervene? Right. No. Or take the parting mm -hmm. of the Red Sea. Uh -huh. People argue, well, there was there are meteorological explanations for, for why this happened. Well, okay, it was pretty good timing, though. There's a difficulty in getting at saying, okay, this is a miracle without any rational explanation. But I think... To be fair to the rationalists and the skeptics, there are a good number of Christians out there of the superstitious and gullible sort who do actually go over the top and sing a miracle in which God has intervened in this amazing way. You know, it seems like every couple of months or so, the, the news media have a, a piece which is mocking believers because I think over the summer, thousands were flocking to a tree in North Jersey that seemed to have within it the image of the divine mercy. And, you know, and a few years ago, there was a bagel that had the image of Mother Teresa on it. And, you know, all these kind of things. And they mock believers, and they have a fair reason to do so, because those who are superstitious and are gullible, they make bad press for, for those of us who allow for miracles, but are not so gullible as to believe everything that well, everyone that comes along. There are things the way they happen every day and what we expect scientifically, but there are also things in which surprises can happen. So what you're saying is your understanding is that not so much that we have this natural world, which is all contained nice and neat, and then God sort of zaps it from outside and says, boom, there goes a miracle. Instead, there is locked within the natural world little supernatural pockets, things we don't yet understand. And that always reminds me when, when we were boys, everybody wanted one of those whistles that only your dog could hear. There are areas of the natural world which we, we know are beyond our perception, but we know it's there. Right. Likewise, that, and I like this idea that the supernatural is similarly an area that is beyond human understanding, but which is also still part of God's natural order, natural creation. Sean, thank you very much for being with us today and talking about this most fascinating subject of Eucharistic miracles. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Thanks for listening, and Sean, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.